Well, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first portion of this Good Shepherd discourse in John chapter 10, which we will continue to look at today. It'll be important as we continue to look at it to recall just for a moment the background, right? We saw that the Lord is Israel's shepherd king. And thus the kings of Israel, after following the pattern of David, they're shepherds of the people. And you'll recall, we looked at Ezekiel 34, it was the Old Testament reading, and you saw that the Davidic rulers had exploited the sheep, and the Lord had promised, promised that he's going to remove these worthless shepherds from, from their office, and he's going to rescue his flock. He remains their shepherd, and yet he promises in Ezekiel to appoint a true Davidic king over the people, and that this one would shepherd them faithfully. The words of the text in Ezekiel are these, I will appoint one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. All of this Old Testament background converges, of course, leads up to it's fulfilled in the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Right? He is the Lord incarnate. And at the same time, Jesus is the promised Davidic offspring. And so as such, as God and man, he's the promised shepherd king of the people of God. Promised in the law and the prophets. So that's the background again. We went over it before, but I wanted to recall it. I'm going to make three points here today. They're in the the bulletin in the back. The good shepherd, the other sheep, and the command of the father. The good shepherd, the other sheep, the command of the father. So first, the good shepherd. So we're in John chapter 10, beginning of verse 11. And you'll notice in the text, in verse 11, and again in verse 14, Jesus says, I am... The good shepherd. Right? This is another of these powerful I am statements in John's gospel. Right? And these statements echo the Lord's own statement back in Exodus 3. I am who I am. And so when Jesus stands there and says, I am the good shepherd. Given all that we know now from the background that Yahweh himself is the shepherd. Jesus is claiming to be God when he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd means I am the divine shepherd. Notice, it's well known, of course, these these lines, these words are very familiar to us. I am the good shepherd. And certainly this entails the idea that he's morally upright. That he's full of integrity. Jesus is a manifestation of God's goodness. God's goodness is is a diffusing kind of goodness. It overflows. He pours it out. We see that in the whole created order. But we see it most intensely, most gloriously, most luminously, in the most condensed way, in the person of his son. But I want to point out something here. The word for good, good shepherd here, can also mean beautiful. 
And that note is most certainly present in the text. I probably could have titled the sermon, The Beautiful Shepherd. Jesus' goodness is admirable and attractive. He's the beautiful shepherd, right? There's a long philosophical tradition in the West rooted in Christian thought that sees goodness and beauty as completely interchangeable with one another. They're called convertible in the Western philosophical tradition. Whatever is beautiful is good. Whatever is good is beautiful. These are transcendent things, primitive things about the world. Jesus is the good and beautiful shepherd, the glorious shepherd, the radiant shepherd. This has enormous significance, I think, for the way you think about Christianity and for the way Christianity looks in the midst of the church and to the world. The scholar William Temple makes the point that our vocation is to practice virtue so that men may be won to it, drawn to it. And he goes on, Temple goes on and says, it is quite possible quite possible, to be morally upright in a repulsive manner. It's quite possible to be morally upright in a repulsive manner. It's it's possible to, to heed to the law in a way that your virtue is not winsome or attractive. In fact, quite the opposite. In fact, this is sort of the default for us. It's, it's hard, if not impossible, for us to be righteous to seek righteousness without being self-righteous. It's difficult. It's hard for us to be discerning and penetrating without being harsh. It's hard for us to be pure and innocent without being naive or proud. There's a kind of high wire that we're on in the Christian life, and it's easy to fall off it on one side or the other. It's easy for us to carry and reflect virtue in a non-beautiful, even an ugly way. Our goodness is easily deformed, either by excesses or by deficiencies. So then we look at this person, this divine person, Jesus. We look at his character and his life, and we see there a radiant nobility, right? Something utterly unique, right? We, there's something undefiled and luminous and compelling about Jesus, is there not, as he's presented to us in Holy Scripture? Now, this is not a timid beauty. This is a wild, unleashed beauty that Jesus has. It's not tame. It's an arresting beauty. But it's beauty and loveliness nonetheless, And it's something that we won't capture if we just quickly skate over the word good in I am the good shepherd. Here we should think and see here, if you will, I am the lovely and the fair and the noble and the worthy shepherd. I am the unmeasured, unstained goodness of God in human form. I am the transcendent beauty of God made flesh. This is why Jesus is the exemplary human being. Because he's lovely. Because he shines this way. This is why we sing in Ferris Lord Jesus, 
which will be our closing hymn, by the way, number 170. Fair are the meadows, fairer still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Creation is beautiful. It is fair. It is resplendent. Jesus is fairer. Jesus is purer. He makes the woeful heart to sing. That we move from created beauty to the uncreated beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Fairer is the moonlight. Fair is the sunshine. And all the twinkling starry hosts, Jesus is brighter and purer than all the angels. Heaven can boast. This goodness, then, of Jesus, it has its own magnetism and its own attraction. Someone said recently, and, and I remembered this phrase, they said, perhaps God has not given us airtight arguments for Christianity. You may agree, disagree with that. But the person went on to say, but he has given us an airtight person. There's an airtight person at the center of the Christian faith. And so we were created, humans were created, we have an appetite for beauty, a desire for the eternal beauty that is God himself. There's a, I've mentioned this, this book of prayers, Puritan prayers, called The Valley of Vision. I know many of you have it. There's a wonderful little prayer in there. It's toward the beginning of the book. It's called the All Good, speaking of God. And toward the end of the prayer, it says this. It says uh, that the Lord has helped the one praying to see that nothing is good but thee, that I am near good when I am near thee, that to be like thee is a glorious thing. This is my magnet, my attraction. Beauty and goodness attract us, and Jesus is the beautiful and the good shepherd. Now, there are many things that a good shepherd does for the flock, but Jesus lays the emphasis in the text immediately on this. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, his life given for your life. Now, This entails something, I think, perhaps, of a redefinition or an addition or a correction to sort of disembodied notions of beauty, right? This is now going to be jagged, cruciform beauty. Beauty which lays its life down. Remember the story I told a couple weeks ago about the Arab shepherd who was asked what he meant when he said, I am the door? He gathered his his sheep into a pen, which had walls on three sides and a little opening. And and the visitor said, you know, where's the door? And the Arab shepherd said, I'm the door. I lay down in the door of the sheepfold. No sheep goes out. No wolf comes in except it's across my body. So to be the door, to be the good shepherd, is to lay your body out, which Jesus does for his sheep. Now, we're very familiar with this, if we're familiar with Christianity. We, we know this language. We're familiar with it. But we might miss the fact that this is quite strange. It's paradoxical, right? Palestinian shepherds, they did not intentionally die for their sheep. 
Because the death of the shepherd would be a disaster for the sheep. Right? There's a sort of paradox. They intended to live for the sheep. And so here Jesus differentiates himself from all other human shepherds, even good human shepherds. Right? For him, the principal thing, the chief thing, the thing expected and necessary is that, in fact, he lays his life out for us, for his sheep. It's paradoxical that that act saves the sheep and liberates the sheep and protects the sheep rather than endangers the sheep. You have to be a divine shepherd to pull that off. That your death liberates and protects and gathers and heals the sheep. I mean, this act of self-giving, you might have noticed this as well, because I've mentioned the Ezekiel text a couple times. This act goes beyond even what is written in Ezekiel. All we're told in Ezekiel is God's going to provide a shepherd. He's going to gather the sheep and make them one. So here in John 10, we begin to see the price that Jesus pays to do this. It's going to mean the violent death of the God-man, the good and the beautiful shepherd. And because he's willing to do this, because he is this kind of shepherd, he is not a hireling. You can see this reference to the hireling in verses 12 and 13 in the text. The hireling is someone who does the job for pay, but doesn't own the sheep. Right? A hireling flees in the face of a crisis or trouble. There's a passage in the, in the Mishnah, which is the Jewish recording of the oral law. Uh, and it, it delineates the responsibilities of a hired shepherd, a hireling. And it says that a hireling, if one wolf comes, the hireling is required to defend the sheep. But if two wolves come, that's counted as an unavoidable accident. And the hireling is not required, in fact, to defend the sheep. So Jesus is actually referring to a little codified piece of Jewish law here. And he's saying this, you know what? I defend my sheep at all costs, at all times. I don't cut and run. My goodness is costly goodness, bloody, lacerated, cruciform goodness. It's a different kind of shepherd. So in addition to this laying down of his life, we see in verse 14 that the good shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep know him. This is, a, this is part of the beauty of the beautiful shepherd. Knowledge here in this context is virtually equivalent to love. When Jesus says he knows you and you know him, you could paraphrase that. He loves me and I love him. 1 Corinthians 8 says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So there you see the equivalence of love and knowledge. So there's this mutual, and it's personal, right? It's intimate, it's detailed uh, knowledge between Jesus and his sheep. He knows us and we know him. And look at verse 15, he says, even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. This is really an astonishing statement, right? The Father and the Son have this infinite, exhaustive, complete, loving, mutual relationship. And Jesus says, that's the kind of relationship I have with you. 
I love and know you that way. You love and know me. As a, and this is a dim, creaturely picture of the intimacy and the love that exists in the Holy Trinity between the Father and the Son. Now, this might seem like sort of, perhaps it's high theological Trinitarian thinking. And it is, I suppose. But it has a very practical pastoral point. Calvin, commentating on that, this very verse says this. It is no more possible for Jesus to be oblivious of us than for the Father to reject or neglect him. That's what Jesus is saying here, right? As my Father loves me and I love my Father, that's the bond that grounds my relationship with you. My Father's not going to stop knowing me and he's not going to stop loving me and I'm not going to be cut off from my Father and neither are you from me. It is not possible for Jesus to not be tending to us perfectly all the time. Even though it doesn't seem that way, perhaps, in our lives. It seems like he's abandoned us. We wonder where the shepherd is. We want the shepherd to act more, perhaps, visibly, or certain ways. It is not possible. This shepherd does not fail you. And so this exhaustive, tender knowledge that Jesus has of you, this should be a great comfort to you, to the flock, It means this. It means you're exhaustively loved. So that's the beautiful or the good shepherd. The second point I want to make here are the other sheep. Not all of us, but most of us in this room are other sheep. Um, Verse 16, we read this. I have other sheep which are not of this sheep pen or this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. Now here, remember... It's easy to forget this in John because Jesus is constantly um, you know, speaking in this exalted manner about things. But he is in the midst of a conflict with the Jewish false shepherds. They've excommunicated the blind man in chapter 9. And the blind man is a sheep of the Lord Jesus. He's heard Jesus' voice. And so this Jewish remnant who followed Jesus did not hear the voice of strangers. So that's the context here. And so Jesus says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's referring to the Gentiles. Jesus has sheep in two places, in other words. He has sheep in Israel. He has sheep in the nations. He says, I've got other sheep. I've got the blind man. I've got my disciples. I have a remnant of Jewish sheep. But I have other sheep too. And my death is going to pave the way for those outside the borders of Israel to flow into the church, the one new man. Not a Gentile church and a Jewish church. One church with Jew and Gentile. Now there's a kind of, we see it all throughout John's Gospel, but here, Jesus, he, Jesus touches these things lightly, but yet firmly, right? Notice the electing mercy of God in view here. Other Sheep, I have. He already has them. They might not be born in, you know, in, until 1750 in some faraway land. But he's already got them. They're already his sheep, even if they don't know it. He's that kind of shepherd. He, in the words of Come now, found a very blessing. He seeks us when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. 
He seeks us. Look at the middle of verse 16. I must bring them. I have these other sheep. I must bring them also. So this is a shepherd under compulsion to gather every last sheep that the father has given him. Notice the conclusion in verse 16. And they will listen to my voice. Their destiny is secure. Now notice these certainty words. Jesus never talks like this. He never says, I would like to try and attempt to gather some sheep from the other nations. We're going to go and preach the gospel to them. Perhaps they'll respond. I'm hopeful. He says, I have them. They will listen to my voice. I must bring them. Right? This is not only the doctrine of election. This is the doctrine of a might. When Jesus lays down his life, it is a mighty, powerful, effective, atoning work. It secures the redemption of his sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. And notice this. Every last sheep he lays his life down for, he will at last gather into his fold. Or in the language of Isaiah 53, he will see the anguish of his soul and be satisfied. This is an extraordinary shepherd. This is Yahweh incarnate who does what the Lord said he would do in Ezekiel 34, gathers all the scattered sheep. And now look at the conclusion in verse 16. And there will be one flock with one shepherd. One flock with one shepherd. Jesus and his uh, shepherding ministry alone is what, get, what secures the unity of the church, the unity of the flock. All the sheep for whom he died are united to him. They constitute one church. Right, what the reformers called the spiritual kingdom of Christ. This is an important point too, right? Whatever we might want to say about the unhappy divisions of Christendom, we can't lose sight of this, that the divisions in the visible church, you know, as lamentable as they are, they do not efface this unity. There will be one flock with one shepherd. They might obscure it to be sure, But they can't destroy it. There's one body, one Lord, who's the one shepherd of the one flock. So the third point here this morning is the command of the Father. Verse verse 17. Excuse me, verse 17. In verse 17, we see that the love the Father has for the Son actually has the Son's death and resurrection in view. As its cause. This is startling. If you're reading along, this should startle you. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Now that, that really should ravish you. That should be thrilling to us. Right? I mean, the father loves the son because the son loves you. And because the son is willing from all eternity, to lay his life down and take it up again. It's a startling thing. He doesn't say, the Father loved me from all eternity, and then, you know, independent of that love, completely secure in that love, I decided also to come and lay my life down for you. He said, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. 
So the love which exists in the Holy Trinity is a love which has decided and willed from all eternity that it will not be without you. It will not be without you. An an alternative way of putting this is that God loves us with the very love with which he loves himself. That's the love that God shows us. Notice the beginning of verse 18 then. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Yes, yeah, one of the most majestic statements in a, in a sea of majestic statements by Jesus. Unlike a good human shepherd who might die accidentally, Jesus doesn't die by accident. He's no helpless victim of the Romans. This is one of the most beautiful things about Jesus in the gospel. Part of his beauty is this kind of sovereign, majestic freedom and serenity. No one takes it from me. What Jesus does in the weakness of Calvary is an act of sovereign authority. It's wonderful. It is remarkable, I think, and we'll see this, Lord willing, as we move through John's gospel, to see the conduct of Jesus during his arrest and his trial and his execution. He walks through this sea of wickedness and injustice, right? this, this deep valley of darkness, with the undisturbed calm of one who is Lord. I've always found this portrait utterly compelling. He tells Judas, do what you must do quickly. He's commanding people, right? He tells Peter, put up your sword. I can call for legions of angels if I want. He tells the high priest that he has no warrant to strike him. He tells Pilate, you would have no authority over me, except it was given you from above. This one is no victim of the powers beyond his control. Right? This one lays down at his time and in his way, in accord with his father's command, he divests himself of his life. No one takes it from him. No one should look at the passion of Jesus and think, oh, poor Helpless Jesus. No one takes it from me. Look at the middle of verse 18. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. Divine authority both in the action of his death and divine authority in the act of resurrection. All of this. All of this. The good shepherd freely laying down his life for the sheep he knows, taking up his life in the resurrection, having and calling other sheep from the ends of the earth, gathering them all into one flock with one shepherd. All of this Jesus does because the text tells us, I have received this command from my father. We see this over and over and over again in John. His whole life is one long, unswerving obedience to the Father's command. This is part of his beauty, beloved. It's a beautiful obedience. You know why? We're disobedient every hour. We we fall short. We're called to love God with our whole heart and our whole mind and our whole strength and our whole soul and our neighbor as ourselves. And we're constantly falling short of this. Jesus did that. Through the whole course of his life, 
Notice it's singular. I did this in obedience to my father's command. His whole life is one single united command from the father. Grounded in this eternal pact between him and the father. So the Jesus who's before us today in this text is a beautiful shepherd. He's drawn you with that beauty. With the cords of that beauty. He has shown you his goodness in his freely given life. And you know what else is great news on top of this great news? He who died for you and who sought you and who knows you and who loves you will keep you. If he loved us when we were enemies, Paul says, how much more shall we be saved by his life? Ours is to respond then with yet another couplet from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, which reminds us of our sheep-like natures. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen. Amen.